through series last week called Character, and this week we continue that series, and this sermon series is looking at how we as Christians, at the heart of who we are as a follower of Jesus, and at the heart of who we are as a church community, have certain traits or characteristics that should be innately in us because we've been transformed by Jesus, and because we've lived surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And, and as we grow in Jesus, each one of us finds the, our characters being developed in new ways, right? We find ourselves changing. We find ourselves growing in these traits. And so this last week as we were beginning this series, we looked at the story of probably one of the most famous characters, Mickey Mouse. And we talked about how Mickey Mouse didn't start as Mickey Mouse. He kind of started as this pesky little guy named Mortimer the Mouse. And he underwent such great character development and found out who he really was. And, and you and I, as followers of Jesus, have that same reality. We are undergoing character development. Well, in addition to Mickey Mouse, there's probably another cartoon character that we all know very, very well and has undergone deep character development, and that is Popeye the Sailor Man. How many people do not know who Popeye the Sailor Man was? Good. He's from the 1930s, so he outlives most of you. Popeye the Sailor Man, or Popeye, debated, uh, kind of debuted, uh, debuted, there we go, as a guest in another comic strip in 1929. He wasn't anything important. He was just kind of a guest character. But what happened is, is his character became so exciting to people as he would make these appearances that by the 1930s, I think it was 1933, Popeye became the comic's main character. He totally changed the nature, the character, and the plot of that whole newspaper cartoon strip. In fact, Popeye in the next few years would become not only the main character of the script, but he would start advertising products. In fact, over the next 80 years, Popeye would have his own comic books, his own television cartoon, an arcade, at one time a place at Dutch Wonderland as well. He had hundreds of, do you guys remember that when Popeye was in Dutch Wonderland? You could ride his boat. I was telling Katie about that. That was some good times. Right? He had uh, hundreds of advertisements on TV. Like He was used to advertise everything from candy to spinach. Now, he even had a movie made after him just a few years ago starring Robin Williams. Popeye probably became the most famous, however. His character probably underwent the most development when he moved from that comic strip to having his own cartoon show. You know, we know Popeye's famous for what? What does he eat? Spinach. And what happens when he eats it? Right? He goes, boom, boom, whoa. Right? Like, you know, like that's what he, he's known for. But in the comic strip, Popeye didn't eat spinach. Do you know how he got his power? He rubbed the lucky chicken's head. The character development, which we see happen for Popeye from when he's a comic strip to when he has his own cartoon, is enormous. There are tons of things that he undergoes. His friends change, right? 
Pluto becomes Brutus, and so on. There's tons of things that his character changes, but there's two things that have always remained the same. One is he was never drawn any different. Like Mickey Mouse looked different at one time, went undergo character development, looked completely different. Popeye always stayed the same. He pretty much has always looked the same, no matter who was drawing him, even though his originator died just a few years after creating him. And the other thing that happened was Popeye was always a man of integrity in a time of transition for America. Now, he doesn't get his power from a lucky chicken anymore. In fact, smoke doesn't come out of his pipe. Since 1970, uh, the cartoon designers decided that that pipe should only be for inhaling spinach. And as Josh pointed out earlier, blowing off steam. But he never actively uses that pipe. And so that's just another character development that is, he's undergoing. But he's hardly changed when it comes to his honest character. You see, Popeye was meant to bring an example of integrity in an era that was facing much progressive change. He was kind of an old school simpleton. I mean, if you guys remember Popeye, he was a little slow, right? He didn't have it all together. He was a man of old school values. He was this blue-collar working guy that worked on his boat that barely floated, and everyone around him was having nicer and bigger things. And he was trying to be just a man of integrity in a world that was fastly changing and progressing. And the other characters in the show were anything but full of integrity. In fact, the other characters, Brutus, was this kind of huge guy that used his brute force to try to advance himself in self-seeking ways. And then Popeye's best friend was Wimpy. Wimpy was this guy who was addicted to hamburgers. You guys remember him? He, he was kind of this drifter type. He, he looked homeless. Like my grandma used to tell stories of people that would sleep on their farm uh, during the depression and like kind of have fires and just move on. He looked like that kind of guy. And he'd always walk up and he'd say, I'd gladly play you tomorrow for two hamburgers for a hamburger today, right? He was not a man of integrity of anything. He was this drifter that had deep financial issues. And then we have olive oil, Popeye's girlfriend. But she's also sometimes Brutus's girlfriend because in, at the core of who she is, she's indecisive and she can't tell if she wants brute force or simpleton, right? So that in a show where it was reflective of changing times, Popeye represents deep integrity. Besides eating spinach, probably the thing he was most famous for was his saying. You remember what it was? I am what I am. He had a speech impediment, so he'd say, I am what I am. He was famous for being a character of heroism and integrity. He always thought his character should speak for itself. Whenever someone would make a hero out of him because he jumped in the water and beat up an octopus to save olive oil or, or something, he said... The reason I did that is because I am what I am. It's just who my character is. This morning, as we continue to study the character traits that should be at the heart of ourselves as followers of Jesus and as a church community, we are learning what should different us or differentiate us as Christians so that we can say, I am what I am. In the first week, we looked at how a trait of honor should define us as Christians and as the church. And this morning, we are going to look at how a trait of integrity should also be the defining aspect of who we are. 
Now, perhaps one of the most famous explanations of what integrity is was said by C.S. Lewis. You're probably familiar with it. He said, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one else is watching. You probably know that quote. It's probably our most famous definition of what integrity means. Now, one of my favorite stories of integrity comes from a, a television show called ABC's What Would You Do? Have you heard of it? It's kind of becoming viral right now on, on, online. And, and what it is, is uh, people creating real-life situations in public that are full of tension and trouble to see if people will intervene in the middle of them and be people of integrity. I invite you to watch this with me. We're at the Saddlebrook Diner, and Vince is having such a bad day, he's making everyone's life miserable. What, did you guys lose the formula for hot water? Can I order here or what? I don't have all day. By becoming the world's biggest jerk. I mean, it, is it me? Really? When he stops off... This is ridiculous. I'm leaving. Tracy spots something unusual. What? Something Vince accidentally leaves behind. A bank envelope. Wow, I can't believe it. Stuffed with $100 bills. The question is, will people allow Tracy to keep the money just because the guy who lost it is a total jerk? What would you do if you saw something like this? One, two, three. A hot decaf tea. So that's a cup with hot water and then a tea bag that says decaf on it. All right? I mean, unbelievable. And as Vince storms out, watches this man applause. Can't get water right. It seems Vince forgot something. It must be Tracy's lucky day. Well, I'm going to keep it. He's a jerk. Don't say anything, okay? But the guy who clapped for Vince's exit now enters as Vince's protector. Now, this woman here found money on the seat there. She did? I'm just saying, I'm sure he'll be back. Well, guess what? Moments later, he is. Did you see an envelope with money in it, anybody? No? Had about $1,000 in it. I'll give you a reward if you have it. Wow, nobody's, nobody's saying anything, huh? And they are quiet. It seems like everybody's keeping Tracy's secret. Thanks for not saying anything. Yeah. He was a total jerk. No, he deserved it. Yeah, right? Yeah, did. did you guys want 100? You want no. money? We're rolling again. What is that? A cup of soup, please. Cup of soup? I said fruit salad. Now keep your eyes on this guy. I'm going to take my business somewhere else. You know what? You, you shouldn't do anything else but this. His reaction to Tracy finding the money will change faster than the diner's daily special. He's gone, right? Oh, no, no, no. At first, he wants Tracy to give the money back. But wait. A hundred dollars to keep silent. That's the deal. Tracy goes back to her table, counts the lost loot, and then offers even more cash to keep him quiet. Now he'll take those $300. But when Vince returns... He's sitting right in that chair. Did you guys see an envelope with money? Yes, yes, it was there. 
what? Just like that, he turns Tracy in. In the black? Yes. Do you have my money? No. This woman here is pointing at you. That gentleman there pointed at you. No, I don't. And you're sure you saw it? Because I'm going to call a cop. I'm not sure. I mean, you, you said you saw it, now you didn't. Are you sure or not? I'm not sure, but I saw it. Now you're not sure. But Tracy wants answers. Did you wrap me out? I told him I knew nothing. Does he still want the money? Here, how much do you want? I don't know. Whatever. Whatever you think is best. Yes, he does. How much do you think do you want? You no, he doesn't. We roll again, and this customer takes a different approach. We're borderline ridiculous here. He is a ticking time bomb. I'm going to take my business elsewhere, because obviously you don't get out of tables. When Tracy discovers the stack of $100 bills... You left a pile of cash, right? Yeah. Yeah, let me see baby's outside. You're going to give him his money back? Yeah, I'm going to give him his money back. It's the right thing to do. He takes action to return the money. All right, let's go. Let's go get him. We're going to go get him. And now the bomb goes off. He doesn't even see me or the camera crew. Don't ever, ever do that to a young lady like that who's trying to work her butt off. He's so worked up, he still doesn't notice me. And the only reason I did that is because I'm an honest man about it. Sir, this is part of the TV show, What Would You Do? He's an actor. No, it's not right to treat people that way, ever. Don't keep the money. Don't keep what's not yours. Why should you? Did I earn it? I found out the ground. And then works hard every day. It's like a thousand dollars. We start rolling one more time, and these customers quickly form a posse. Anybody hand in an envelope for mine? To force Tracy to come clean. Hey, go. It's an envelope full of cash. She's got it. Oh. That one there with the black hair. She's got it? Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. You have my money? I don't know what you're talking this about. This gentleman's telling me you found yeah. it. We saw it? Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys saw yeah. it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. I'm going to call a cop. When Vince leaves, the customers let loose. Man, why'd you just give us the money? Oh. What are you talking about, though? Are you kidding me? He's getting the police. Just put the money to register. We'll But it doesn't even concern you guys. I don't what even know why everyone is upset. Why don't you right just let me do. have the money? It's the right thing to do. Just give him, him that money. Him. That's disgusting. Ma'am, always tell him that you found it. Really? No, because now I look bad. No, he's across the street. Don't say anything. Wow. Let's do it. Let's break. Hi, little man. Oh, my God. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. And you ratted her out right away. Absolutely. She's a thief. She's a thief. Absolutely. You don't know the guy. Doesn't matter. It's the right thing to do. So what we see here is a test of integrity. Now, what would you do in that situation? I mean, the guy was a total jerk, right? Now, it's easy to ask that question when it's $1,000, but what if it's $20? What if it's just a few dollars? Sometimes we think it's really easy to be people of integrity, but what happens, we find out, is that we aren't always the Popeyes in a changing world. Sometimes we are the indecisive olive oil or the brute force brutus. 
As we talk about integrity, there's lots of ways to define it. We can talk about it as far as a character of somebody or even a strength of a building or, or a bridge. And so for that reason, I want to define it. The uh, Random House uh, on Abridged Dictionary says that it's adherence to a moral or ethical principle or the state of being whole, entire, or unimpaired. And, and for our time this morning, I want us to focus on just this definition as a lens at a foundation for our study today, and that is that it's the soundness of moral character. And so when we refer to integrity this morning, that's what we are going to be referring to. Now in 2009, Katie and I had moved to Virginia. We had left the church that we were part of. We had served on a, a board of a church plant that had became very sustainable and was doing really well. And, and so we had resigned and moved on and, and took this job in the D.C. metro area that we uh, knew nobody in. In fact, as we moved there to work for this nonprofit, I became the tour manager, but was also involved in some opportunities for educational and administrative duties. And so what you see there is a picture of me teaching a, a classroom in, in D.C. And though faith was involved in the role, when I took the job, it was a job that was considered to be very non-denominational or ecumenical. We were uh, an organization full of lots of people, Protestants, atheists, Catholics. However, as things started to happen, as there was a changeover in leadership with the board, we suddenly realized that as transitions happened, there were three of us that were the last three remaining non-Catholics in the organization. Eventually, we were asked to uphold a teaching position in which we could not. In fact, we looked at it and realized that it kind of undermined our view of the authority of Christ and it was a big deal for us. And, and we weren't only asked to just teach it. We were asked to promote it. We were asked to put it on our website. We were asked to speak about it in front of hundreds of thousands of people at festivals. And as we explained why we could not, and our understanding was that we were hired in an medical organization, uh, the option came down to where we were, three of us were crowded into our administrative office. And one by one, we were brought in before our boss. First, my boss went in, and they said, are you willing to uphold this position? I said, no, I'm not. It's not who I am. I can't do it. And they said, what if it means you're going to be fired? Now, he was a dad of five kids. And they said, it doesn't, he said, it doesn't matter. I, I got to stand for what I believe in. And so they fired him. And as I sat outside his office, I watched people escort him away. So then they brought me into the office. They asked me the same thing. Are you willing to promote this? And I said, no, I can't. And I, here is why I cannot uphold a teaching position like that. And I thought I was under, you know, same kind of thing, this, this higher of ecumenical rule. And, and they asked me again, are you willing to promote it, even if it meant you were going to be fired? And, and they told me to pause and think about that. And they said, as you're realizing now, we've already gotten rid of the director, and you would be the next person in line. And we've wanted to get rid of him for some years, and so uh, if you're willing to uphold this teaching position, we will double your salary, we'll give you his position, you'll be in charge of this organization that was bringing in $7 million a year. And I looked at them, and I said, I, in 
everything inside of me of my integrity can not only uphold that teaching position because of blah, 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 but I could never take the position of a man who has five kids and was fired because of the same thing. I would never sell myself out just for a position. So like my boss before me, I was escorted out of my office without even being able to stop in my cubicle to pick up anything. And if I would have known then, the next six months would be uh, a long journey of trying to find work again, right? If I would have known that I, it would take me six months to find work and, and that I would interview it and, and apply for hundreds of places and not get anything, I don't know, honestly, how I would have answered that. Here, Katie and I had moved to Virginia. Everyone we knew was in that job. In fact, our house that we rented was from the HR department. Everything we knew was wrapped up into that position, and suddenly it ends. And we like to think that we'll be people of integrity, but if we knew the hardship that would come from sticking by our integrity, I wonder if we'd quickly often be able to justify another reason for doing something that is of less integrity. Living integrity can actually be hard. Secular investors Mark Victor Hansen and Robert G. Allen attempted to write a book on how to become a millionaire and still hold your integrity. Uh, I say attempt because I don't know if you can uh, uh, invest the way they were practicing investing, but they wrote this. The wind might cause a kite to rise, but when it keeps it up there is the fact that somebody on the ground has a steady hand. You have to hold steady to your values, your integrity. It's your anchor. You let go of that, and well, it isn't long before your kite comes crashing down. We need to develop as Christians, at the heart of who we are and at the heart of our church communities, a trait of character. And we need to hold on to that character of integrity in such a way that the kite for our churches and for our lives doesn't come crashing down. This morning, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, and 17 through 31. In this passage, we're about to read, Paul is in jail. He's imprisoned. Uh, and he begins to write the church in Ephesus. And why he's writing to them is because he's calling them to unity. He really wants them to be one body. But he also wants them to remain pure and holy in their lifestyles, to be people of integrity. And what he begins to unpack is called Christian living. He explains to them what life in the church and as individuals of Jesus, what a life of integrity should look like. And about this passage, as you're finding Ephesians 4, William Barclay says, Paul has dealt with the great and eternal truths of the function of the church and the plan of God. Now he begins to sketch what each member of the church must be if the church is to carry out their part in that plan. I love that idea. In fact, I love that he uses the word sketch as we talk about this series of character that is sketching out these traits that we need to develop. And, and Chuck Smith, famous for his program, The Word for Today, and the Calvary Chapel movement, writes this. Now, after spending the three chapters telling you what God has done, now he, Paul, turns around and says, now you walk worthy. So as we look at this passage this morning, we are looking for the traits of what it means to be full of integrity or what it means to walk worthy. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. And let me just stop. We could just end it right there. I mean, that line is punching, isn't it? 
Like, that should be our slogan for this series. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling in which you have received. And the word he uses there is vocation. So he's speaking to their identity. And ironically, what he's basically saying is, as I'm a prisoner for the Lord, I want you to be a prisoner to your calling. I want you to be subject to it. And, and then he begins to tell them what it looks like. But he, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So I tell you this, insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking, very worldly, kind of uh, minimalistic thinking. He goes, they are darkened in their understanding and they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Take warning, church, because I think if Paul was writing our church today, as in the Western church, he would warn us of our hardening hearts, not of the neighbor's hardening hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. What's in it for me? That, however, is not the way of life that you have learned and you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Or if you're reading the King James, it says what? The old man, right? This idea that we are to throw off our old man, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to be put on this new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, each, must, each one of you must put off uh, falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Begin to see the traits of integrity. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something with their own hands. We already begin to see God putting his multiplication process into the church here. And they must do something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is hopeful and helpful for building up others according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. But do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God from whom which you are sealed the day, on the day of redemption. Get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander. By the way, I love the word brawling here. Like, what kind of church was this? Get rid of all brawling. So, like, was there literally, like, they definitely weren't a Mennonite church because we do that passively, right? Like, like uh, were they literally fist fighting? Like, no, this theology says that. Whoop, right? Like Popeye popping a spinach. Right? Uh, so get rid of all brawling and slander and with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's a powerful passage. Paul just comes off with everything there. I mean, you could take months unpacking that. William Barclay says this about that passage. When a man enters into any society, he takes upon himself the obligation to live a certain kind of life. And if he fails in that obligation, he hinders the aims of that society and brings discredit on its name. Here Paul point, paints the picture of the kind of life a man must live when he enters the fellowship of the Christian church. When we do not live out a lifestyle of integrity, when we act like the people in the video we just watched, we hinder 
the heart of ourselves and the heart of our community with and the aims of the church. When we do not live up to the traits in this passage, we actually become an obstacle, not only to our own legacy, but to the work of the church. We literally could spend months, as I said, on this passage. It's a very rich one. And in addition to the main truths that we've kind of just read by William Barclay and Chuck Smith, I think Paul gives the church in Ephesus uh, some overarching realities to what it means to live out integrity at the heart of who we are and the heart of our church community. On the back side of your bulletin, you'll see some, some places to take notes, and we're just going to work through a few notes in ac- acronym form. That's what that's called, right? Acronym form, uh, in which we can kind of summarize everything Paul's saying what it means to live truthfully and with boundaries and awareness and, and serving others and to be invested in a way that the church is multiplying, a way that we are called to live with this holy righteousness. And we're going to put those into some overarching themes so that we can remember what it means to be full of integrity at the heart of who we are and the heart of our church. First, integrity is an identity of humbleness and holiness. It's an identity of humbleness and holiness. Saying we see that it's invested in caring for each other, not having someone care for you, but in caring for each other. And it says integrity is being nurturing. To be a person of integrity, you're concerned not about what's in it for me, but what's in it for the best of this community. Integrity is being nurturing. Next, integrity is truthfulness. And there's two sides to this if we'd look through this passage. It's one about training or kind of captivating or transforming our thoughts into truthfulness. To be speaking truthfully to our neighbors, but also living lives that are very truthful. Never to be caught in a way that seems as if we are lying or misleading or have broken the trust with anyone. We are to be people of truthfulness. Next, integrity is empathy. It's learning to look at your neighbor. It's learning to look at the people around you and sense what they are feeling. See, Paul's overarching passage of Ephesians is about calling the church to be one body, learning to put yourselves in each other's shoes. Next, integrity is... Now, there's three things that fall in here. I had to make them... Uh, fit in there. So we have three G's. So we'll spell integrity with G-G-G-G, right? Integrity is graciousness. It's learning to be gracious or forgiving, to be uh, kind, it says, uh, to be genuine, to be I am what I am, right? But it's also about being gentle. It's about being gentle. Integrity is graciousness, genuine, and gentle. gentle. Integrity is also reliability, righteous, and respect. It's doing what you say you do, and it's doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. I'm not going there. I just said that to be nice. That is not integrity. Integrity is being a person of your word. Last, uh, second to last here. Nope, third to last. Integrity is investing. It's taking who we are and what giftings God has given us and we invest it in others, into our context, and into our church communities for the unity and the better of the church. 
He's talking wholesomely, not letting, what's he say, any unclean things come out of our mouths. And lastly, I love that line where Paul says, be sure that you do not offend the Holy Spirit. See, when we live lives that are not full of integrity, we are actually not only hindering the church, we're hindering the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. We must be careful to always be yielding to the Holy Spirit as people of integrity. Now this passage reminds us what integrity should look like for the Christian and for the Christian community. And I encourage you to take time this week and really spend it in Ephesians 4. It's a rich passage. It really is. Paul, Paul kind of calls them to unity. Then he tells them the gifts that will build them up in unity, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. And then he tells them what their traits are as people of integrity. And that's the part we looked at this morning. I encourage you to think about these things and to spend time unpacking them for yourselves. The traits of integrity which Paul pushes out encourages us to live the kind of life that proves that God has called you and called me. We must push into Jesus in such a way that these traits become naturally part of who I am. We cannot train ourselves. We cannot uh, behavior modificate ourselves into these things. When we do, when nobody's looking, like we can teach ourselves to speak wholesome in one context. But when we're home, or we're out with friends and we speak another way, right? That's not integrity. That's behavior modification. These traits come when we press into Jesus, into his Holy Spirit, when we are yielded to his Holy Spirit in a way that it changes who we are. Ask your friends and your neighbors that are not here who they see you as. Then ask your friends that are here who they see you as and see if the two match up because they are usually different. But integrity lives in the, both contexts in the same way. We cannot teach ourselves to live these things. They come from personal transformation. So think for a second. As we have looked at these traits of integrity... In the first quadrant in that box, it's essential to know your strengths and to play to them. Think for a second, what aspect of integrity do you do well? It's important to know that. Name it. What, what, what part of all those traits that we just looked at do you do well? Are you a nurturer? Do you speak wholesomely? Name it before the Lord. I mean, that's a strength. That's, that's important for you to realize about yourself. That's who you are. I have this problem of wanting to speak the truth into every situation, which isn't always good. But one of the things that offends me the most then is when people lie to me. Like, if you lie to me, uh, it is almost impossible for me to ever return you into a same kind of uh, uh, relationship with me. That's not forgiving. I get it. I'm just telling you my weakness, right? So my strength is truth-telling and remembering everything in the way it was said. And then my weakness is... Uh, when I watch people dance around their words or when I watch somebody lie to me, uh, that automatically is full of such integrity that I struggle with it. And so in that second quadrant, I encourage you to name either where you struggle to accept integrity or where you don't do something well. So for me, the part that would not be well is forgiving, right? It's important to be able to name ourselves and our weaknesses. 
so that we know how to grow in that aspect of our lives, and so we can name it before the Lord, and so he can still transform us. As the worship team comes forward, I just didn't leave you with this quote again. I, I love this quote, and I think it's a powerful takeaway for us. The wind might cause a kite to rise, but what keeps it up there is the fact that somebody on the ground has a steady hand, and you have to hold steady to your values, your integrity. It's your anchor. You let go of that. Well, it isn't long before your kite comes crashing down. What trait is Jesus asking you to hold on to? Or where is he asking you to anchor yourselves a little better so that you have an integrity in your legacy and in your life? I invite you to stand as we sing in closing.